It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Go ahead and open with me to 1 Kings chapter 13. Continuing our study there, looking at 1 Kings chapter 13, specifically verses 11 through 34. I do have a couple of announcements just before we get started. I have two prayer requests to add to that list, uh, which just by the way is a joy to hear God's people praying for each other, and I'm just encouraged by that. I hope that you also are encouraged by that. But first, obviously, as you've heard, we do have a really big day today, uh, a little hectic for myself and my wife, just being uh, going around and, and talking with people. I've talked with some of you already, so just please be praying for our church plant, uh, just for wisdom for us, for the elders as we go about um, just seeing the Lord's wisdom, his providence, his leading of his hand as he brings people and he leads us to the, to the right location. And so just pray for the church plant. But on a, uh, a different note, just, uh, just right now, if you wouldn't mind in your seat, just pray for myself. I was sick this past week. I'm still under the weather a little bit. Um, so just pray that the Lord would give me strength and, and grace to, uh, to come and, and teach the word that I wouldn't have any bouts of, of coughing. Apparently, uh, Great Wolf Lodge gives you more than just a good time and, and fun memories. So apparently there are some germs going around there. So if you would just pray for me. All right, 1 Kings chapter 13. I've titled this message, A Prophet's Warning. A Prophet's Warning. You know, Scripture abounds with warnings about turning astray from the truth. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament, places like Deuteronomy 13, where God's people are warned about listening to false prophets or devious dreamers, those who would lead God's people away to chase after another God. Prophet Jeremiah speaks out as God's final warning to a nation fixing to go into exile, calling them to turn from those who speak peace, peace, when there is no peace. We see the New Testament's also filled with similar cautionary exhortations. Jesus said that there will be many false prophets who will arise and attempt to lead God's people off the path of truth. Paul, we know, makes many statements such as 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, where he says that some will fall away from the truth, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We even have two books and our New Testament devoted to this very topic, Second Peter and Jude, in which the apostles dedicate and call God's people to hold fast to the inspired scripture. Yet while the Bible provides many explicit statements warning us from falling away from the truth, there might be no stronger or sadder or, in all, all honesty, stranger story relaying that very message than the one that we are about to study in the following verses. We see here that the following example of this disobedient prophet, this man of God, teaches us that when, when one leaves the safe haven of God's commands, ruin is sure to follow. So our lesson then is crystal clear today. We have a timeless application for us. It is your job, it is my job to see that we do not take the bait of Satan's deceptive schemes, but that we adhere to the word of God. 
We must anchor ourselves to the sure moorings of the scripture, lest we drift away and crash upon the rocks of unbelief. You see, to be a a man of God, to, to be a woman of God, means you must hold fast to the word of God. You must cling to it. You must long for it. You must eat from it. You must meditate upon it. You must tie it around your neck, make it as frontlets before your eyes. You must let it lead you, guide you, and teach you. This is what this warning is meant to teach us today, to hold fast to God's word. Now, just to jog our memory banks, um, First and Second Kings, you remember, was written to a particular audience for a particular purpose. Really, that purpose is twofold. We see that in exile, here were the, the people crying out, wondering, why, why did this happen to us, O oh God? Why are we cut off from the promised land? Why are we alienated from the covenant blessings here in exile? And so we see that the prophetic writer, the inspired author of 1 and 2 Kings, then wrote to put a definitive squash on such futile speculation. See, the problem here is not that God had forsaken his word. The problem here was not that God had turned away from his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or even to David. The problem here is that the reason for the nation's captivity is that the nation had rejected the word of the Lord and thus brought upon themselves the covenant curses promised in the law. And so we see throughout First and Second Kings, as you've already been noticing, how over and over and over again, the author is trying to highlight, he's trying to focus, he's trying to lift up our eyes and to see and to heed the warning about what happens when a nation no longer holds to the standard of the Mosaic code. You see, from the king himself on down, the people were weighed in the balance, and they were found wanting. They had drifted, they had rejected, they had rebelled against God's word. But on the other hand, this is a hopeful book. The purpose of this book also is to present a scarlet thread of hope, which we have been seeing as well, that while the people may have rebelled against the word, God has not rebelled against his word. He will establish David's throne just as he has promised. So in other words, then, this is a messianic book, a book in which to provide for this audience in exile a a glimmer of light, within an exile of darkness. Now, as we come to this chapter, as we've been looking at it last week, as Cam worked through the first 10 verses, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how does this chapter, how does this scene, how does this part of the narrative fit into the bigger picture? Not only does it it fit into the bigger picture, how does it relate to us? Well, what we see here then is that our theme is this, that in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 11 through 34, God is teaching the nation. He is teaching us. He is issuing us a dire warning. This is a, this is a warning against turning away from the man, uh, or excuse me, from the word of God. It serves to show us that all people, all 
people are accountable to obeying the word of God. It doesn't matter your office. It doesn't matter your title. It doesn't matter your role. It doesn't matter if you're a prophet, you're a priest, a king, or a peasant. You must hold fast to the God's will as expressed in his word. To disobey, then, is to bring about swift destruction, just as we see here in the life of this man of God. So, brothers and sisters, do you want to be faithful men and women of God, shining for as God's beacons of truth in this godless society, in this godless culture? Then take heed to the warning that we see here and hold fast to God's word. Our passage breaks down in two segments. We see first the illustrative warning in verses 11 through 24. So you can join with me there here in this warning of this man's life. In verse 10, we were greatly encouraged, were we not? As Cam worked through that, we saw in these first 10 verses, here is this man of God, chosen, called, commissioned by God to go out and to speak against a pagan king who had, uh, excuse me, a, a king who had turned to pagan idolatry. A man who set up not one golden calf, but two golden calves. And what do we see there? We see even through that man, uh, through the king's bribes, this man of God stood firm. We see in verse Eight, he says, even if you were to give me half your house, go ahead, set me on the throne with you. Give me riches, give me fame. Guess what, king? I would not go with you. I will not eat your bread. I will not drink your water in this place. Why? Because I have the word of the Lord. I have been commanded by God to not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which I came. We see in verse 10, so he went another way, and he did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. In the face of immense temptation, this prophet withstood the test, right? He chose God, not gold. He chose submission, not status. He chose compliance to the word of God and not compromise. We're just, man, what a terrific story. This is great stuff. I mean, this stuff can preach right here, right? Can it not? Well, unfortunately, it's not the end of the story. It continues to go on. And what we see uh, ensuing in the following verses are some of the most tragic and, be honest, some of the most bizarre verses that we have in the scripture. And again, the point the Spirit-inspired author is trying to make here is to warn us. Trying to warn us. Here is the man of God standing against a nation, standing against a king. And yet this man fell away from the truth, allowed himself to be deceived and disobeyed God. So it is a warning. It is meant for us to listen, to take close initiative to, to follow closely, to see how this man failed, that we would not fall in line with him. This warning then comes to us in the three dramatic episodes. Three dramatic episodes. First, we see the deception of the man of God. In verses 11 through 18, look with me at verse 11. Now, an old prophet was living in Bethel. Right there, we stop. Our antennas start coming up. Alert, alert, alert. Here is an old prophet, unnamed, living in Bethel. Now, that's 
curious. This man is living in Bethel. He is living in the very hubbub. He is living in the very Mecca. He is living in the very heart of Israel's pagan idolatrous worship. That gives us a clue that this guy is not following the word of the Lord. He is a complacent. He is a compromising old prophet. He is not following the Lord as he should. I mean, if he was truly a prophet, then the Lord surely would have called him to go forth and speak to Jeroboam. But instead, he had to get a man from Judah to come all the way over. And so we see already that there is something not quite right going on. And we see this old prophet was living in Bethel, verse 11, and his sons, <coughs> his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. You can go ahead and just... Uh, take note of those words because we're going to see them again. In fact, we see in this story parallel after parallel. The, the way that this story is written is very explicit, trying to point and make uh, a, a clear statement to us. So here are his sons. Uh, again, we see our antennas are up. Alert, alert. His sons were there. His sons were on the scene. His sons heard. They saw everything that this man of God did. They saw his deeds, how the altar was split, the ashes were poured out. They saw that uh, Jeroboam's hand was shriveled up, that it was taken back and renewed. But they also heard, even more importantly, the man of God's words. They came and reported to their father what was to come. Judgment was coming upon this place. Judgment was coming upon our head. Judgment was coming upon this land. Not only did they hear the judgment, but they also heard the command that the man of God had been given. And so they came, they relayed, they related these words and these deeds to their father. It goes on then in verse 12, their father said to them, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode away on it. Probably not my first choice if I'm trying to go catch somebody to go saddle a donkey, but that's what they did back in the day. But at this point, we're, we have this alert going on in verse 11 and verse 12. But at this point, we're still a little curious. As, as, what's this guy doing? Why does he want to saddle a donkey and go after this man of God? He, he knows clearly that he's, this man of God has been commanded by the Lord to not return back to the way. He knows that this man of God has been commanded not to eat bread or drink water in this place. So why? Why is he going after him? So our curiosity is building here, and so we get to verse 14. So he went after the man of God and found him. Again, take notes of those words. You'll see those again coming up later. So here he is. He's frantically looking about. He's chasing him on his steed, this donkey, and he finds him. He finds the man of God sitting under an oak. Okay, so what's going to happen? Well, we still don't know yet. Here he comes, and he says to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And perhaps at this point, the man of God is a little bit cautious. He knows that he is supposed to return by another way. He's not supposed to meet and talk to any of the people in the land. And here's this guy that came after him and found him. And so we see kind of this cautionary response. He says, I am? Like, who, who are you? Why do you want to come and, and talk to me? What is, what's going on here? What's up? Well, we see in verse 15 that his intentions start becoming clear. Look at verse 15. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. 
Now, where else do we see that same request? We saw just a few verses earlier with Jeroboam. Look over at verse, verse 7. There we see Jeroboam say to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself. Eat bread, drink, come with me, refresh yourself. And guess what? And if you do, I will give you half of the kingdom. I will give you a reward. I will give you a bribe in the other sense as he was trying to buy the man of God off. Well, here we see then that the text says that the old prophet had the same intentions as that of Jeroboam, the exact same phrase, implying then that this old prophet wanted the man of God to join with him. Literally, the text says, come uh, with me to this house. Come with me to the house. Well, commentators, I think they rightly argue here, is that in both places, Jeroboam was asking the man of God to come with me to the house, that is the house of Bethel, that is the temple, that is the place where the idolatrous worship was going on, and Jeroboam wanted the man of God to go with him there and partake of his hospitality. What do we see here? We see this old prophet asking, requesting this, uh, the man of God to do the same thing. The question is why? Why would he want him to come back and eat and drink with him? Well, he has nefarious intentions, no doubt. He is tempting to coax this man of God into religious compromise. To partake of hospitality is to give a right hand of fellowship. It is to pledge allegiance to one. And so what this man of God wants to do is to show, to indicate to the rest of the people that there was, that there was no contradiction between the new way of Israel and the old way of Judah. He, he wants to show to everyone that righteousness could have peace with unrighteousness. That, that darkness could have fellowship with light. His desire here is to turn the man of God's heart away from the command, away from the word of God, in hopes that perhaps he can nullify the destruction previously promised. Maybe if I get this man of God to come and join me to disobey, then, then God's word won't come about. The judgment won't come true. That what has been decreed here will be postponed. And, and maybe even God might actually condone rather than condemn our practices. That's what it seems that this man's intentions were. Here he comes offering this request. Well, the verses 16 through 17 continue to give the, this impression because that's how the man of God took it. Listen in verse 16, he says, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. Why? For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. So we see here then that this man of God takes the old prophet's offer and he sees it as something to be utterly rejected. This guy is not in compliance with the word of God. Notice there in verse 16, he says, a command came, excuse me, verse 16, he says, I cannot return with you. If you've got a highlighter, or you've got a marker or pencil, 
Go ahead and circle that word return. Highlight it, underline it. It's the most important word in this whole chapter. It's the Hebrew word shuv, which means to return, to turn, to repent. Is often the word that is translated by. And so what we see here is that the man of God says, I will not turn from following the will of God. I will not repent from the command of God and turn to disobedience. He says, I will not return with you. I will not fail to obey God and walk in disobedience. He says, neither will I eat bread or drink water with you. He will not give his loyalty. He will not partake in this hospitality. But notice there at the end of verse 16, this is a key phrase that I think helps unlock for us what's going on here. He says, in this place. In this place. So what it would seem then, this is the same answer he gave Jeroboam in verse 8 as he responds to Jeroboam. He says, I cannot do it in this place. So it seemed then that the man of God, the place is the problem. I will not go to that place. I will not go to that house. I will not go there in Bethel. I will not go to that temple because it stands for all that is opposed against God. And so just as he will not eat in this idolatrous place with Jeroboam, neither will he eat in this place with this old prophet. And then we see why in verse 17, because this is a divine command. Again, at this point, we're like, all right, that's my kind of guy. Man, he is standing for the Lord. He is not giving in. Doesn't seem to really be any chinks in his armor. And then verse 18. Verse 18, look with me there. He said to him, this old prophet said to the man of God, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Right? Notice two things. First, notice what the old prophet doesn't say. He doesn't say, like Jeroboam, hey, come back with me and I'll give you a reward. He doesn't try to bribe this man of God. He has seen that that scheme, that tactic has failed. No, Satan knows that this guy will not be corrupted by an offer of reward. So Satan steps up his game. He unleashes his most sinister weapon through this man of God. That is lies and deception. Just as the crafty serpent did in the garden with Adam and Eve, we see that this old prophet will counter revelation for revelation. You got a command of God? I too got a command of God. And so we see this cunning old prophet deceives the man of God on three important points. Look at verse 18. He says, first, I also am a prophet like you. Hey, what? Hold up here. I'm also a prophet like you. We worship the same God. We're on the same team. I'm also speaking God's word. I'm not some pagan idolater. God speaks to me just like he speaks to you. Second point in which he seeks to deceive the man of God, he says, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, he says, I have a better, uh, excuse me, I also have a revelation from the Lord. I have new revelation to add to your revelation. I have something to um, introduce in accordance, or excuse me, in addition to God's commands. And then we see in verse 
at the end of verse 18, a third point. He says, ultimately, you know what? My revelation is a better understanding than your revelation. He goes on after saying that he has a word of the Lord. He says, this is what God told me. Bring him back with you, notice these words, to your house. To your house. You, you got it all wrong, man of God. Now, I want you to come back to my house, my, pers- my personal home. It's okay for you to return and to eat and to drink if it's in my house. He deviates and switches and turns the attention in this minute way in order to deceive this man of God and then to pull him away from the truth. And of course, was this all legitimate? Absolutely not. The verse, end of verse 18, the narrator gives us his comments, but he lied to him. He had purposefully and intentionally sought to deceive this man, to bring him back away from the truth, and to turn him away from God's word. As we look at our world, that's exactly how Satan lurks in our world, does he not? constantly barraging us with false forms of revelation so as to draw us away from the truth, right? We live in a world full of old prophets. Those who have voices, such as Muhammad of Islam, what does he say? He says, I too am a prophet. I too have received revelation from God. Angels have spoken to me. It's written down in the Quran for you. And understand this. Right, Jesus said he was God. He's not really God. He didn't die upon the cross. He wasn't raised from the dead. We have voices like Joseph Smith who says, Oh, I too am a prophet. I've received revelation from angels. I've written down in my book for you. Oh, yes, we worship the same God. Oh, yes, we have revelation just like you. But Jesus, no, he's not God. We have other wolfish voices coming from even within the quote-unquote church. You have the prosperity movement. You have extreme charismatic circles. We got prophets. We have prophets and prophets. We have revelation. We have angels. We have dreams and vision. God speaking to us all the time outside of Scripture. You even have secular voices, those who argue, we too have revelation. It's just a natural revelation in, con- uh, in contradiction to your supernatural revelation. We have old prophets all around us, brothers and sisters, seeking to deceive, seeking to offer us Satan's rat poison that we might turn from God's word. Therefore, what, me, uh, what we must do then is to constantly stand firm against such schemes. We must hold relentlessly to the inspired and errant and sufficient word of God. We must be rooted, grounded, established in the truth so that no one can take us captive by empty uh, philosophy and human deceit. I loved how one commentator put it on this point. He says, quote, always the church's greatest test come not from kings who call for imprisonment and torture the great tests arise from lying prophets and from wolfish pastors and preachers. We must guard ourselves from these voices. 
Well, the suspense is building then at the end of verse 18. What's he going to do? How is this man of God going to respond? We see, secondly, that he doesn't respond well. The second episode is the disobedience of the man of God. Look at verse 19. So he went back. He returned. He turned. He repented, if you could so use the word. He went back with him. He broke the first of the threefold command, and then he ate bread in his house, and he drank water in every way that explicitly shows us that this man of God disobeyed the word of God. As one commentator puts, what the king had failed to achieve with all his power and privilege, the old prophet accomplished with his lie. He was running so well, right? What happened to this man? Well, he let his guard down. He allowed himself to be deceived. He did not test this prophet's supposed revelation. He didn't say, hey, give me a sign to, so that I can know that this is the word of God. Now, we don't ask for signs today, but what we do is go to the word of God, and we measure what we hear from these other sources with the word of God. If it contradicts what we find in this book, then we know this person is a lie. And so we see here this powerful warning to you and to me today of letting our guard down, of running so well, but then to stop clinging to the word, to stop evalu evaluating all truth claims by the word, to, uh, uh, of warning us from getting out of the shelter of false or excuse me, of getting out of the shelter of faithful Bible teaching and to begin consuming the chatter of secular worldviews. If we're not careful, you and I can be deceived and led astray by an old prophet today. In fact, I had a friend in college who seemed to be zealous for the Lord. She was reading her Bible. She was witnessing the people. She was fellowshipping with believers in every way. She seemed to be hungry for God. Until so one day there on that secular campus, she had to take a world's relig uh, world religions class for her major. And there in that world religions class, she found not an old prophet, but an old professor. One who fed her weekly the lies of Satan. And so she devoured, and so she continued to eat. And little by little, she began to believe this man's false Revelation, And despite our desperate warnings and our urgent pleadings, she eventually turned away from the way of truth. As I say that, many of you probably can think in your own mind, somebody in your own life whom you have seen that happen to. Brothers and sisters, it can happen. If it can happen to the man of God, it can happen to us. Let us heed the warning and hold fast. Well, what do we see happen? Third episode is the death of the man of God. The death of the man of God, verses 20 through 24. He says, that Now it came about, as they were sitting down at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. Now listen to this, verse 21. And he cried to the man of God. If you read back in chapter 13, verse 2, it was the man of God who cried out against Jeroboam. Now what it would seem in a reversal, a dramatic reversal of events, now it is the man of God who is almost in the place of Jeroboam being 
uh, having the word of the Lord cried out and decreed against him. And what did he say in verse 21? He says, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord. That is, he has rebelled. Now, the word there for disobey is the same word for the rebellion used of the nation in the wilderness. How they had God's clear command, and yet they turned away. It's the word used of them refusing to rebel and going into the promised land. And so we see here this man of God, his rebellion, he has now opted not for the clear command of God, but for the word of men. And we continue to see, he says, you have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. You've not held fast. You've not kept watch. You've not guarded yourself that about that which God has commanded you directly, clearly. Verse 23, uh, 22, but you have returned. Again, there's our word. And you have eaten bread, and you have drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. So God makes it clear that his, his command initially was not about a specific place there in Bethel, but was rather the whole area, the whole region. He was not to go into anybody's house or anybody's way to eat bread or to drink water. The whole region was corrupted by the worship that had occurred there. And so we see then, because this man of God did not know the command as he should, he made a fatal compromise. It informs us that helps us to, again, know that we have to know God's word. We have to know his command, that we too would not be deceived to fall away into error and so disobey what God has clearly given to us here in the scripture. And what was the man of God's sentence? He says, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. You shall die and not be buried with your ancestors. In ancient times, this would have been a sentence of horrible punishment. It would have been a, a severe disgrace not to be buried with one's ancestors. Now, real quick, our minds are probably racing here. Like, what? What, what, about, the, what about the old prophet? Well, why is there no word of God coming against him? Well, why is there no judgment upon the man that deceived the man of God? Well, I think the observation, I think the question is fair, it's reasonable, but ultimately it misses the whole point of the story. The focus is not on the old prophet. The focus here is on the man of God. He was the one called and commissioned by God. He was the one given a clear command. To focus on the old prophet is to miss the lesson intended for us. That is the warning about turning from God's word. So let us not focus on the old prophet, but on the man of God and learn from his lesson. And we see following in verses 23 through 24 that the word of God just declared does in fact come true. Verse 23, it came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk. Key there, after, so after his disobedience, this is correlating what's going to come next with his disobedience that he has just partaken in. He saddled the donkey for him, for the prophet, notice this, whom he had brought back. Now the man of God is called the prophet. The man of God is called the one brought back. He is the disobedient prophet. He is just like the other disobedient prophets 
who had turned from God's word. Verse 24, now when he had gone out, a lion, notice this, met him. We heard those words earlier with the old prophet. A lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And so there the author makes important details. He said, this is no ordinary happenstance. This is not just some random act of wildlife violence. Here we see that the donkey is standing beside him in verse uh, 24. Now, if you're a donkey and you see a lion, you're probably going to be running away. But here's the donkey standing right there, perfectly still. And then he gives us another important detail that the lion also was standing beside the body. The lion is not eating the donkey. He's not eating the man. But he is standing perfectly still. This is God's act of judgment upon this man of God's disobedience. This is how God will hold accountable those who will live in hard-hearted rebellion against him. We turn then from the warning to the response. The informing responses, verses 25 to the rest of the chapter, I'll move through them speedily here. But our attention now is shifted away from the man of God into the other two characters. The way that they respond is to inform us. It is to give us the, um, the informing understanding of how we are to respond to this warning given by the man of God. We see first response is that of the old prophet, which is turn and be delivered. As if things were not bizarre enough, the following verses really cause us to start scratching our head. What, excuse me, what does this old prophet, why does he do what he does? Well, the answer that I would hold to, and I think commentators are right in this, is to say that this man, no, excuse me, this old prophet heard and saw and realized the warning that this man of God, his life illustrated, and he repented. He turned, and he was delivered. I think this is shown in three actions. The first is that he expresses conviction. We see in verse 25, and behold, men passed by. They saw the body thrown on the road. This was a marvelous, wonderful, amazing uh, event. And there was this lion standing beside the body. And so they came. Here again, we see the words, they came and told. It's almost as if the story is repeating itself, as if we have a new introduction going. And they told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And so, verse 26, <coughs> when the old prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. This is where the prophet's heart is changed. He realizes now that God's word cannot be undone. If God will pour out his judgment upon the man of God, God will indeed accomplish everything according to the word of the Lord that will be poured out upon Bethel and upon uh, Jeroboam and upon all who live in that area. And so it would seem here then that this man of God realizes that the word of God will stand true and his heart is then convicted. We see that continuing on in verse 27. He says, <clears throat> then he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. Again, he goes out to find his body, this time thrown on the road 
with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. <coughs> the lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. Verse 29, so the prophet took up the body of the man of God. He is now showing kindness. He is now showing love. He is now showing goodwill to this man of God. Verse 29, how to bring him back. There's our word again. Now the old prophet is himself showing outwardly what now has changing in his own heart. He himself is now bringing this old prophet back to do what? To come back to the city of the old prophet in order to mourn and to bury him, to show him kindness, to show him favor. But not only does he express his conviction, we also see that he expresses his sorrow in verse 30. You see, he laid his body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. He mourns over this man whom he previously deceived. And then thirdly, he expresses his deliverance, his change of heart, and that he expresses hope, specifically hope in the word of God, verses 31 through 32. He says, after he had buried him, he spoke to his sons, saying, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. What's the old prophet doing here? Well, what does he mean by this? Well, again, the answer goes back to chapter 13, verse 2. Judgment was coming upon the land, and part of that judgment was to have the human bones of the area burned on top of the altar there at Bethel, thus desecrating the land. What is the old prophet doing then here? He's fleeing. He is fleeing to the only refuge that he has to escape the coming wrath. He is placing his hope in the fact that if his bones are buried next to the man of God, his will not be dug up and will not be burned. Why, again, why is his hope in this? What is this newfound trust? It's verse 32. It's the word of God. He now believes. He now trusts. He now knows that the word of God will not return void. It will accomplish that for which God has purposed it. He says, verse 32, here's why I have this hope. For the thing shall surely come to pass which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. This is a remarkable. This man of God, who th uh, this old prophet who thought he could turn the word of God, who thought he could stop the word of God, now comes and submits and realizes that this very thing will surely come to pass. And his heart then now is to receive the word of God, to accept it, and then to try to find a way in which he can find hope and deliverance and what is about to come on that judgment. What do we see in 2 Kings 23, verses 17 through 18? Josiah comes to this point. He sees the man of God, and he sees the old prophet's bones buried, uh, buried next to the man of God, and Josiah says, leave them alone. This are, these are the ones who came and delivered the word of God. So why then is this included into the account? Because it's meant to show us how to rightly respond to the prophetic warning issued from the man of God's death. God's word will surely come about no matter who you are, no matter what your role, no matter what your position. The old prophet got it right, but what about Jeroboam? We see the response of Jeroboam, do not return, uh, excuse me, do not turn and be destroyed. 
verse 33, after all these events, after the man of God has declared this judgment upon him and died and this old prophet has turned, what does Jeroboam do? How does he respond? He does not return from his evil way. There's our word, return. He does not repent. He's not turned to the Lord. He's not turned to the word of God, but rather closes his heart in sin. And he continues to make the nation fall into his sin as he sets up priests of the high places from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. We see verse 34, what happens? This event becomes sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from the face of the earth. As we finish, what are our key takeaways? Two, first, if you are a believer here this morning, (coughs) (coughs) listen to the warning. Listen to the prophetic warning given here and hold fast to the word of God. How are you going to hold fast? We have to get into the word daily. You have to continue to set your heart to studying the word of God. Because you can't guard against error. You can't guard against deception if you do not know the truth. You have to sit under faithful teaching, those who will teach the Bible. You have to be accountable to others and to yourself, and you have to stay humble. And then lastly, listen to the warning. If you're an unbeliever, listen to the warning, like the old prophet did. Do not turn your heart like Jeroboam, but instead turn now to the word of God incarnate. Jeroboam failed to listen and he perished. If you too fail to listen, you too will perish. So what you must do today then is to turn, to put your hope in the word of God may incarnate the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know what? There was another man of God that came from Judah. But he was not just a man, he was the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, too, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness to be deceived, to turn away from the word of God. But instead of giving in, like the man of God here, Jesus Christ stood firm. He continued to hold fast to the word of the Lord. He obeyed, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead so that you would put your hope not in some man's bones buried in the ground, but in the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up, raised, and who will come again to rescue and to save all of his people. That is your hope today. Put your hope in the raised, resurrected one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had to hear this prophet's warning. I pray that you have placed it like a, like a signpost in our minds over the mantle of our hearts that his picture would always be before our eyes of this is what happens when we turn away from God's word and we will not heed. And let it be as a motivating factor to always cling and hold fast to your word. Lord, thank you that we have an even greater reward, a greater motivation than Jesus Christ who did and accomplished that which we could not do. Thank you for the salvation we have in him. To him be all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.